Hello, and welcome to Immaculate Consensus. I'm Richie Platzman. And I'm Ron McCullough. So there we are. We've started. Ron, how are you? Well, thank you, sir. Very well. Sunny afternoon, southwest France. Autumn is definitely coming. Chestnuts falling off trees. Fantastic. I am, uh, I am relaxing at the moment with a uh, glass of ferment, which is a Hungarian grape. Um, and this wine is from the Tokai region, which is in eastern Hungary. Uh, I think in France they, they used to have a wine called Tokai or Tokay, and then I think they actually had to stop calling it that when Hungary joined the European Union because the EU has rules about how certain things are only from certain places. A very sweet dessert wine, isn't that it? Well, the, the ones that get exported most often are the dessert wines, and some of those are quite expensive, although they're also very delicious, but they also make uh, table wines, which are getting easier and easier to find uh, in the United States. You know, I've just gotten so excited talking about the wine. We've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, who are we and what is our podcast? Uh, what are we doing here? Well, um, shall I go first? Please. I'm Ron McCullough. I'm a journalist. Uh, I've been a journalist for uh, four decades now, um, indeed over four decades. And uh, I started off uh, as a freelance, then joined the BBC for 10 years and um, uh, ended up working on a uh, on, on their breakfast news show called Breakfast News, funnily enough. <laughs> and then before that, um, a long stint with the Today programme which is where I had my most fun. And then I left in 91 and uh, set up my independent investigative production company, which is still going. And uh, we made, we made uh, quite a few investigations around the world. Uh, it has always piqued my curiosity uh, how outrageous we humans can be. And <laughs> I tend to try and find the, the most, uh, the most uh, outrageous of them and uh, see what... Uh, see what evidence we can gather in order to point the light at them. Yeah, we're, uh, we're only half a chromosome away from a chimpanzee, and I think it shows sometimes. <laughs> so your good self. Ah, my name is uh, Richie Platzman. I am, oh, at the moment, I'm a volunteer for a guy named uh, Max Rose, who's running for Congress uh, in the New York 11th, which is Staten Island and uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, if anyone remembers the movie Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, that's uh, Bay Ridge, the sort of Italian, formerly Norwegian neighborhood, just at the very southwest corner of Brooklyn. Uh, but I'm also an activist and uh, someone who has worked in reality TV in New York for many years. And, uh, and I just met Ron a couple of days ago uh, at a wedding. And it was a, it was a lovely affair. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a romantic. I tend to get quite moved at weddings. But... Um, when I met Ron, we just started chatting, and then the next day at the, the brunch, we were chatting some more, and at one point, a, a mutual friend of ours was walking past, and he, he didn't even stop. He just sort of looked over and pointed at us and said, y'all should do a podcast together. And Ron and I both looked at each other, and uh, you know, it seemed like a great idea, so here we are. Well, apart from what we've got lined up for today... Where are we going with this series, Richie? What do you think? Well, at the wedding, we had such a fascinating conversation. I just want to pick up on the things that we kept coming back to because I felt like we were talking about the essential problems of today, but in this very fun, boozy, uh, frank, friendly, optimistic sort of way. There is this, this sense that we both share that things are not going in a good direction and that there are solutions, there are things that can change and perhaps should change in order 
to bring us all um, more hope for a better future. And, and I, I think that's very key to what we're doing here as well. There are so many reasons to be optimistic. We just have a lot of trouble talking about them. Uh, but you and I didn't seem to have trouble talking about them uh, that night. So maybe we're onto something. We'll let our dear listeners be the judge of that. Now, one of the big subjects we talked about uh, at the wedding was Mr. Viktor Orban, who's the Prime Minister of Hungary, a very interesting character, and indeed his relationship with a name that's more familiar, George Soros. And before we kick off with that, as you who are listening will hear, you know quite a lot about this. Uh, how do you know quite a lot about this? I guess I can claim uh, some very slight uh, Hungarian ancestry. Uh, some of my ancestors came from uh, Galicia, not the Galicia in Spain, but the Galicia in what is today western Ukraine and southeastern Poland, as well as from what is today Romania. But those areas at various times had been part of uh, Hungary or Austria-Hungary. So I had a, a general knowledge of Hungary from when I was pretty young. Starting about nine years ago, I went to Hungary for the first time, and I've been back almost every year uh, since. The first impression that Hungary made on me when I got there, I had been traveling in the former Soviet Union for a few weeks before that with a friend on a backpacking trip kind of a thing, was that I couldn't pick up the language. I'm normally someone who's pretty good at, at learning foreign languages when I travel, like, but man, we were in Hungary for four days on that first trip, and the only thing I learned how to say was Sia which means, like, hello or, or goodbye. I was impressed with that. Uh, and I was also impressed with the feeling of being in the, with the West for the first time or being in Europe uh, for the first time. Uh, I much later found a quote from Yorgi Ligeti, the great composer uh, whose music is featured in Stanley Kubrick's films Eyes Wide Shut and 2001 Space Odyssey. The quote from him was that if you arrive in Budapest from Paris, you feel like you're in Moscow. And if you arrive in Budapest from Moscow, you feel like you're in Paris. And I definitely felt uh, like I was in Paris. And then probably about three years ago, two things happened at the same time. One was that Duolingo, Hungarian, came out. And then I also started dating uh, a woman from Hungary who was living in New York, who later returned to Hungary after Donald Trump became president. Uh, I started to learn the language, and then I could follow Hungarian media, and I started watching YouTube videos in Hungarian. Uh, and it meant that I got to uh, observe the changes in Hungary over the last few years, both when I traveled there uh, and online. And uh, that's why I know anything at all about this small country. A veritable gateway to the East, dear boy. There's this question of where is the border between Europe and Asia? You know, as an American, the first time as a child that I was told that Europe and Asia were different continents, and then I looked at the map and I saw that it was one landmass, uh, I thought something fishy was going on. But my personal favorite theory for where the border between Europe and Asia is, is in Budapest, on the Danube River, between the, uh, the Alps in the west and the uh, Great Hungarian Plain in the east, which is the westernmost step in Eurasia. The first engaging subject uh, is, is uh, Mr. Orban. Yes. Who many of us um, haven't really engaged with up until quite recently, but has been a player for some time since... I believe the age of 26, when he made quite a stunning speech just before the end of communism in Hungary. Is that correct? Uh, yes, uh, th that's my understanding as well. The, uh, I thought I might talk a little bit about the events uh, that took place in Hungary uh, in 1989, uh, just to give some context to uh, how Orban sort of made his debut on the, uh, you could say the world stage. I mean, it was clearly, it was an event in Hungary, mostly for Hungarians, but it was certainly the first time 
uh, the international press ever heard the name Viktor Orban. So uh, Hungary was one, was part of the Warsaw Pact uh, during the Cold War. This was sort of a buffer of countries that stretched from Poland in the north to Bulgaria in the south that formed a buffer zone between the Soviet Union uh, and Western Europe. Uh, 1945, World War II ended, and in a lot of Europe, there were Russian tanks and British tanks, American tanks, and they just sort of stopped where they were, and that is where the, the border was between the West and the East, uh, and Hungary ended up uh, on the eastern end of, uh, of this, the Iron Curtain, I guess is the word I was looking for. Uh, and so Hungary had had a, um, they had had a popular uprising in 1956 that was crushed by the Soviet Union. And uh, in 1989, a number of things happened. The first thing that happened was that the government in Hungary decided not to fund paying for the barbed wire fence uh, that was on the border between Hungary and Austria. And that may not sound like a big thing, but what it meant was that uh, people could cross more or less freely between Hungary and Austria, which meant that East German nationals could go from East Germany to Czechoslovakia to Hungary to Austria to West Germany. And all of a sudden you had tens of thousands of people uh, crossing through Hungary from East Germany to West Germany, and that set, um, that set things in motion, which culminated in the Berlin Wall uh, coming down. And so that actually started in Hungary. Uh, and then a few months after that, uh, they rehabilitated a man named uh, Imre Naj, who had been the prime minister of Hungary in 1956 when uh, they tried to distance Hungary from the Soviet Union. Uh, tanks came into Hungary. If you hang out online, you may sometimes hear the phrase tanky thrown around for people who like to uh, sort of apologize or apologists for Joseph Stalin. Um, he was buried uh, face down in his grave, which in Hungarian culture is a very, it's a sign of disrespect. And they basically rehabilitated him. They, he had been buried in a mass grave and they gave him a formal funeral. And it was at the, I don't know if it was literally the funeral for if it was just a, a political gathering associated with that. That is where Viktor Orban uh, gave this speech. And uh, Viktor Orban had founded, or co-founded, I should say, a, a political party named uh, Fidesz, which is still his political party uh, today, which uh, stands for sort of Alliance of Young Democrats. He had founded it in his dorm room in Budapest. And, um, and he gave this speech where he criticized the, the, so the leadership in Hungary, the, the communist leadership, and where he spoke about Imre Naj as having been a hero of Hungarian culture. So he was pushing it. He, he, he was pushing it, wasn't he? I mean, that must have been a, a dangerous thing to do at the time. Uh, I, th I think it was. It was certainly a risky thing to do. It was not the safe uh, thing to do. But Orban had actually, he had been uh, following the movements, particularly in Poland, uh, very closely for most of the 1980s. So I think he had a pretty, I mean, it's easy to say now with hindsight, but I, at the time, at least, he certainly had a, a good reading of which way uh, things were going. Uh, but, you know, when he spoke, you, you can look up the clip on YouTube, or, or we may even put a link to it in our show notes. Uh, he, you know, had some pretty long hair. He had a bit of scruff on his face. And, um, you know, he said he cut a very striking image, at least compared with, uh, with communist leadership uh, at the time. And uh, shortly after that, 
uh, Fidesz uh, ran in the, the first elections that they had in Hungary. And uh, the, you, the poster that Fidesz ran uh, was actually really funny. So basically on the top panel, you had a picture of uh, Eric Honecker kissing uh, Leonid Brezhnev, the premier of the Soviet Union. This was not a kiss cheek. This was a full-on kiss. Uh, Brezhnev uh, kissed Jimmy Carter. He really liked to, to kiss other politicians. And uh, so basically on the top frame, you have Eric Honecker and Brezhnev kissing. And then on the bottom frame, you have a young Hungarian couple sort of sitting on a park bench holding hands and kissing a little bit more modestly. And then it asked in Hungarian for, for voters to choose basically between these two, between communism and between, uh, if not exactly free love, then certainly the openness uh, of democracy. And it worked. I mean, he, he made a big impact at that first speech. He did. Uh, he, was, he was certainly the, the most charismatic of the youth leaders who spoke. Uh, and that's the only clip from that uh, event that uh, still gets circulated around, that gets used in, in uh, TV news reports and stuff like that. Had he already met the next character uh, in this extraordinary story, George Soros, at that stage? He had. Um, George Soros um, was, was born in Budapest and lived through uh, World War II before emigrating first to the United Kingdom to attend the London School of Economics, uh, and then to New York in the United States, uh, where he proceeded to make a small fortune and then a large fortune as a hedge fund manager. Uh, and once uh, George Soros was a billionaire, um, you know, he started giving, giving his money away, and he was particularly interested in giving it away in his country of birth, Hungary, uh, where he actually, first he bought a photocopier uh, for Fidesz to use, and photocopiers were actually, they were numbered back then because they could be used, among other things, to print uh, subversive political literature that the Communist Party wanted to, if not completely prevent, then certainly restrict and keep track of. Uh, but he also paid for George Soros to go to Oxford University and get a master's degree, uh, which is why Orban is able to give interviews in English today to the foreign press. So what was his relationship? Was it a close one with Soros? Had they met each other? They discussed ideas? Uh, I, I'm not sure how close they were. I'm sure they must have met since at least after the government fell. I know George Soros you know, would, would visit uh, Hungary, and I, it seems likely that he would have met uh, with, with all sort of youth leaders. But they, they, certainly, were, they certainly had a good relationship uh, when, when, they, when they started compared to the state of affairs today. Now, it's, it's an important fact that Soros is a Jew because, because a lot of the dynamics that follows are to do at least with the allegation that anti-Semitism becomes involved. Uh, it's true. Um, Soros, so uh, in, I don't know if this made the news in, in Europe, but uh, I guess about a month or two ago, uh, Roseanne Barr lost her television show uh, here in the United States uh, for saying uh, some provocative things on Twitter. And one of her favorite subjects to tweet about was George Soros. Um, George Soros is uh, not just by Orban, but by right-wing uh, critics, frankly, around the world, is criticized a lot for his support of, of left-wing causes. And the, he seems to get uh, outsized attention for his actions, in my opinion. And I think that that is, it has to do mostly with the fact that he 
uh, is Jewish. Uh, he, you know, he grew up uh, in in a secular household, but uh, you know, anti-Semitism is 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 the um, persecution of Jews uh, as a people, you know, for, for as a race, basically, then as opposed to for their religious beliefs. What was there a history of anti-Semitism in in Hungary? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's uh, you know, it's important to remember that. Prior to World War II, the demographics, I mean, really of all of Europe, but especially of the area sort of to the east and south of Berlin, was, was, uh, it, was it was much more diverse than it is today. Uh, basically, every city uh, that had a sizable population as far east as the Volga River, you know, well past Moscow, had a sizable German population until World War II. It was one of the reasons why Hitler could sort of justify to the German people that all of that should be Germany because there were already Germans uh, living there. And basically every community that had German speakers also had a large uh, Jewish population, but this was particularly true in Hungary. Uh, Budapest, the largest city in Hungary, was approximately 25% Jewish uh, up until the time of World War II. Uh, And this is the community, the the Jewish community of Budapest. This is where uh, George Soros uh, grew up. I might mention, as long as we're talking about the Jewish community of Budapest, that... uh, this is also where Theodor Herzl, the uh, founder of the Zionist movement, uh, was from. If you go to Budapest today, uh, the house where, where Herzl was born, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's right next to the Dohanya Street uh, Synagogue, which is the fourth largest synagogue in the world, the largest that's not uh, either in Manhattan uh, or in Israel. And it's a very interesting synagogue, because when you go in, uh, it looks uh, something like a, a bit like a church. I mean, it's obviously a synagogue, but it's not the architecture in it is different than most synagogues you see uh, in Europe. And I think that that reflects the character of the Jewish community in Budapest that George Soros uh, came from, which was a very secular one, uh, one that was integrated into uh, mainstream society uh, at every level, and uh, one that suffered suffered greatly uh, during the war. So, so. I suppose the stage is set then. Um, uh, Soros has come back uh, in, in, into what he hopes are, are, are more uh, liberal times, um, uh, obviously um, wants to uh, involve himself in the activities of his country of birth mm-hmm. um, and, and, and working with these youngsters who have obviously at that stage great ideas as far as many people were concerned, um, uh, leaving communism behind, forming uh, a new country. Um, uh, in effect, and forming a democracy for the first time uh, in in Hungary's history, uh, Hungary was not a democracy before uh, it was a communist country under Soviet domination. Uh, it had never been a democracy at all until uh, 1990 91 when uh, when Orban started to get actively involved uh, in Hungarian politics. So he's really part of the first generation. Uh, of democracy, and perhaps the last, uh, depending on how things go in the next few years. So what went wrong? A number of things went wrong. I think it's worth so it's worth talking a little bit here about the European Union, uh, which Hungary is a part of today. Uh, the European Union 
can't, you know, it was it, it came out of uh, coal and steel agreements uh, between France and Germany um, in the late 1950s, is my understanding. And then that uh, turned into a common market of six countries of France, Germany, Italy, uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Uh, and then by the time that the Cold War was ending, you actually had the European Union itself, where you have passport-free travel between countries and free trade between those countries. Uh, and Hungary joined the European Union along with a number of other countries in Central and Eastern Europe, most of which uh, had formerly been communist countries. And, and this really changed uh, the European Union in the sense that it, de- it, before that, the European Union had been very France and Germany-centric because those countries made, if not a majority, then like a plurality uh, of political power, economic power within the European Union. Uh, and those were also countries that uh, had, at least in the case of France and Germany, had been democracies uh, before World War II. Uh, even if they weren't democracies during World War II or after World War II. They had, they had a history of democratic institutions uh, that, that wasn't there in Hungary or Poland or any of these other countries. Um, and Hungary did uh, something different than what Greece did, uh, which is that they didn't join the euro uh, when they joined the European Union. They kept their currency, which is called the forint. And the forint is a very low-valued currency. I, uh, I checked the rates this morning and... It's trading at about 334 to the euro, 370 to the, to the British pound uh, as of this taping. And that allows Hungary to uh, – it, it means Hungary doesn't have the same problems that a country like Greece has, uh, which uses the euro. Uh, basically, Hungary can – whenever Hungary has economic problems, which has happened a number of times uh, in the last, uh, whatever, 30 years, they can devalue their own currency and basically force – foreigners who own uh, government debt to eat the losses rather than people and companies that are in Hungary. Uh, And it means that they aren't under the thumb of the European Central Bank uh, in Frankfurt the way some of these other countries are. And, um, but you didn't ask me about the foreign, you asked me something else. What what did you ask me? Well, I asked you what went wrong, but, Ah, but, but your, your answer, your answer, we can get there, but, 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 but I think also important, uh, Richie, is that, there was a sense, wasn't there, uh, within the European community, the politicians uh, and the commissioners, that they wanted to uh, expand the uh, European Union into these eastern states uh, between themselves and Russia uh, and the old Soviet Union. They wanted to make that buffer zone, they wanted to own it, in effect. They wanted to offer a space for those countries to become part of the European Union rather than them to drift, I suppose. Uh, Yes, I I would say that's fair. Um, I mean, it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, since Germany is the the largest economy of the European Union, countries that are in the European Union, um, I think every country in the European Union, except for Germany, Germany is their largest uh, trading partner. The countries in the European Union are going to be dominated economically uh, by Germany, which, I mean, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's true. And... This, I don't mean to compare the European Union to Nazi Germany in any specific way, but this is an ambition that Hitler had, that that basically all of this land to the east and south of Berlin should be German-oriented, German-dominated. It should be a place where German factories operate and people buy German goods and where German people can 
go and buy land cheap and, and do various things like that. And so it is, uh, it's very easy for politicians like Viktor Orban to sort of give speeches where they criticize the European Union and they, they can kind of shake their fist at them and they can tap into this um, sort of deep roots, deep-rooted nationalism and uh, fear of other countries uh, that comes from what it's like to be a small country in the middle of Europe. Hungary is now a member of the European Union, and Orban is now a rising politician, apparently a Democrat, but, but something changes. Yes. Um, as soon... Uh, Fidesz did not win the first uh, elections that they had in Hungary. I mean, they won several seats uh, in Parliament, but it wasn't until a few years later, I believe in 1996, that, uh, that Orban actually became Prime Minister of Hungary, uh, for the first time, and you saw a shift uh, to the right politically, uh, even before he became uh, prime minister. And I and I've read you know various uh, theories as to why they did it. Um, one thing I've read is that because Hungary didn't have the sort of violent transition out of communism that happened in say Romania, uh, that actually a lot of people from the Communist Party still held power, if not outright political power, then economic power, institutional power, uh, in the early 90s, and that Fidesz had to get support from right-wing voters if they were going to uh, purge these people so that they could uh, actually have uh, a liberal democracy uh, in Hungary. But as far as Orban's relationship with George Soros, I think the, the thing that went wrong was that Soros gave money to everyone, uh, including political opponents of Fidesz, which I think Orban could probably live with when they were sort of a semi-underground group in the 80s and the communists were still in power. But once Orban had some real political power of his own, I don't think he could really tolerate it anymore. The second time uh, that Orban became prime minister, which was in 2010, and uh, crucially this time Fidesz uh, had a two-thirds majority in the Hungarian parliament, which gave them the power to change the constitution and do other things, which uh, Orban didn't have the first time he was prime minister. And uh, that election was immediately after the financial crisis of 2008, which uh, impacted, I think, pretty much the whole world. Uh, but in, uh, in Hungary, the way that it played out was that uh, the uh, Socialist Party um, lost their majority. There was an embarrassing audio tape that leaked of uh, their leader giving a, a speech in private, talking about how incompetently they had been governing over the last three years. And uh, in, in that uh, context, uh, I think demonizing George Soros uh, was, was uh, particularly useful to him as a politician because Soros is not only Jewish, but is a symbol of uh, international finance. Um, there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who like to blame the sort of problems with world economics uh, on Jews, but on also on bankers and people who work in the finance industry. And, um, and also Orban understood that, uh, at least in Hungary, you know, it was, it was criticizing the European Union and George Soros in one breath. You could sort of paint, paint this broad picture of this sort of enemies of Hungary, um, and it was, it was also a great way to get uh, money out of the European Union. I mean, under Orban, they've built 
the new number four subway line uh, in Budapest, almost completely financed uh, using money from the European Union. And when you ride in the cars, uh, many of the posters you'll see inside say, stop Brussels. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite surreal to a, to a foreigner such as myself. Uh, but I guess it's good politics in Hungary. It, it does suggest that it's the sort of, I, I, I suppose this is, I suppose showing my bias, but it, it, it seems to be this backward approach to politics that we've seen a lot of of late, where you know that by going back to fear, um, something that we haven't done uh, in Europe, I, I suspect, since the Second World War, really. It's, I mean, there have been those who've tried. But but this, this seemed to have worked, perhaps for the first time in modern Europe in Hungary. Uh, I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I think part of it is just, is just geography. I mean, I think in, in France and Germany, I think... This whole idea of we're not going to have another war, you know, we're going to cooperate, and no matter, you know, how imperfect the European Union is, clearly it's better than another war where everyone dies. I think that that plays better there than it does in in Hungary, where people basically had communism and then they had a few nominal years of of independence, but then you know they're just sort of back to being dominated by another foreign power, at least in the eyes of uh, people who aren't at the top of the uh, social scale. Or the economic scale. So the, this was a cynical process, it seems to be the suggestion of the commentators when it comes to Orban. I, I mean, I think it would have to be. I mean, Orban is someone who personally has only benefited from the existence of uh, people like George Soros and uh, Western institutions. And, um, and to spend all of his time uh, attacking them while also taking their money seems uh, hypocritical at, at a minimum if not outright uh, disingenuous. And all for personal power? Well, I mean, that's... Um, I guess you could ask that question of any, any politician. I mean, you, it's, uh, it's easy to, to criticize others when they're not in power, but if you're in power, you have to stay in power to get anything done. Indeed. Yeah, and at least of late, he's used it to, uh, you know, to embed Fidesz uh, in various uh, you know, institutions in the country. He's nationalized the school system, so now all the schools in Hungary uh, use textbooks uh, that are, you know, have sort of language in them that has been approved by Fidesz. Uh, perhaps more importantly, he has bought a, a lot of media companies in Hungary and the ones that the Hungarian state doesn't own. Uh, he's had his friends and allies purchase. Um, I thought it might be worth mentioning uh, one of them, a Hungarian-American named Andrew Vina, who is perhaps most famous for producing the Western Tombstone, starring uh, Sam Elliott and Val Kilmer. Uh, you may remember Val Kilmer has a Hungarian girlfriend uh, in that movie. Hungarians like to throw a little something, at least the Hungarians in Hollywood always like to throw a little Hungarian something into their scripts. Uh, but at this point, there's only one uh, TV station in Hungary that isn't either state-owned or owned by an ally of Orbán, which is the RTL Club, which is a, a German-owned uh, TV station. Um, and, yeah, and, and media control seems to be a big way that Orbán keeps himself uh, in power. Uh, I mean, you know, in the, here in the U.S., and I'm sure in, in France, you know, there's been, particularly since 2016, there's been a lot of attention on whatever you want to call it, fake news, uh, you know, the, the way in which, uh, right, yeah, you know, the way in which people consume and, you know, produce media is, 
is changing, and and I feel like there has to be there has to be a change in politics when technology changes in that way. Um, but it doesn't have to necessarily be a change away from democracy uh, the way it's been in Hungary. But I suppose the question must be, though, how, how did he do economically? I mean, I mean, was he, he must have been keeping the voters happy to, an, to, to, to the extent that he kept getting elected. How did he do that? Not just with fear, I trust. I presume he had to deliver something. Oh, uh, it's true. I mean, it's, um, I, mean the, I went to Budapest for the first time, uh, you know, about 10 years ago. And, you know, you, you can tell just from walking around the, the city uh, how much things have changed. Uh, the you know and, and at least aesthetically I'd say almost universally for the better I mean so many of these old Austrian buildings from the end of the 19th century they've been you know refurbished the exteriors have been uh, cleaned up you know Hungary gets a lot more uh, tourists now uh, than it used to not so much in the United States but from you know Western Europe uh, you know the, the low cost airlines like Ryanair means that. Uh, British people, for example, can go to Budapest just for the weekend, you know, for a couple of dollars. And um, the, uh, in addition to that, uh, you, you know, there's all this money that comes in from the European Union. Um, Orban, among other things, uh, his government has uh, refurbished and, and restarted a uh, railway line that just runs to Orban's uh, hometown, which uh, almost nobody uses, but... Uh, it still runs a couple of times a day, um, and there has been there have been a lot of uh, a lot of Germans actually uh, move to Hungary, particularly to the area around uh, Lake Balaton uh, in the west, which is uh, during the summer. You know, you see these uh, Zimmer Fry signs everywhere. That most of the tourists who go there are German, but there's a particularly ugly kind of uh, German who relocates there. They're, they're Germans who don't like how multicultural and diverse Germany is today, uh, who move there basically so that they can be around white people exclusively. Uh, it reminds me a bit of what I've read about uh, Rhodesia, you know, that basically people would move from the parts of the British Empire that were decolonizing yeah. and kind of going to, they were for like one generation, they could do like one more round of uh, living these unsustainable lifestyles. <laughs> And then, of course, we have the, the, the major crisis, the migration, the refugee crisis in Europe that, that kicked off about four years ago. Yes. Um, and uh, I think the, the first thing we have to say about that, uh, which I think isn't said enough, is that uh, this crisis is 100 percent a consequence of American foreign policy. Uh, the de destabilization of Syria... Uh, regardless of whether you think uh, that Assad has to go or not, um, after the, the so-called Arab Spring, uh, the United States has been funding just about anyone uh, who is willing to attack the Syrian state. And Hungary is it's part of the Schengen Zone, and it's actually the southernmost and easternmost uh, part of the, the Schengen Zone, the part of Europe where you can travel uh, without having border checks. And so that means that it's usually, if you're, if you're coming on land through Syria, then through Turkey, and then through the Balkan Peninsula, Hungary is where you're going to come into uh, the European Union. And so that's not really Orban's fault. Um, 
but it means that Hungary has, you know, has had, or at least in 2011, 2012, had a lot of people uh, passing through the country. Um, and he built, or, you know, Fidesz built a barbed wire fence on Hungary's southern border with uh, Syria to prevent people from coming into the country illegally, which I think is particularly ironic because uh, those that area of uh, northern Serbia, Vojvodina, was actually part of Hungary uh, up until World War I. And even today, uh, Novi Sad and uh, Subotica, which is in Hungarian, it's called Sabatka, these cities in northern, Syria, in northern Serbia have uh, large Hungarian populations who now they have a barbed wire separating them from the Hungarians who live just a few miles away. It's still there. It is still there, yeah. And how does that how does that affect local um, movement across the border from Ser- Serbia, for instance, into Hungary? Um, presumably, I mean, there 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 was a relative amount of movement, even though Serbia as yet is not in the EU. Um, there there was movement across that border. That movement still presumably goes on. Uh, it does. I mean, if you have a EU passport or an American passport. Uh, you know, you can drive across that border and and it's fine. Um, but the, you know, the if you're someone who, you know, for example, doesn't have a car, you know, and you don't have a Western passport, um, it's much harder to... Because once you cross into uh, a country in the European Union, you can apply for asylum even if you didn't enter the, the country legally. You're already there and you can say, oh, I'm a refugee or, or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of political reasons why they want to prevent people from from getting in. There's a there's a similar, though not uh, exactly comparable, situation in uh, Calais uh, near the Channel uh, between France and England, where there are people uh, who want to get to England to claim asylum who are uh, waiting in sort of derelict camps. But does this mean that a lot of people came to Serbia who who were intending to travel north, maybe through Hungary and towards Germany, which, of course, was a very popular destination? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there are very many people in Syria who are like, you know, Hungary is really where we should flee to. I, I think most people want to go, yeah, to either to Germany or to the Netherlands, you know, to the sort of wealthier countries in Northern Europe. Uh, but Hungary is where you have to come through. If you're not going to come through Hungary, uh, you have, you know, the only other way to do it really is to either go through uh, Ukraine or Belarus, which are perhaps even more hostile towards uh, people from the Middle East, or you would have to try and go, you know, through like Murmansk and like the very northwestern part of Russia and get into Norway uh, that way. Uh, and so uh, still, I think the most popular route for, for people coming uh, by land is to, to try and come through Hungary. But what we've seen since 2012 is you see more and more uh, people just coming on boats trying to go through either Lampedusa, which is a small island uh, to the south of Sicily that's part of Italy, uh, or into Spain. Now, the, the European Union, in order to um, uh, have, have, have some sensible policies uh, towards this um, crisis of refugees arriving in large numbers, as I understand it, um, they uh, came up with a quota system for all, all of the um, members of the European Union, and they were all obliged uh, under the system to accept a certain number of refugees. Norban 
pointedly um, said no. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, he made he made a, a point of saying that Hungary was not going to take um, was not going to take its quota share uh, of migrants. And uh, I think it might be worth mentioning a, a little bit of Hungarian history here, which is that uh, Hungary spent most of the 16th and 17th century as part of the Ottoman Empire. There was a big battle in uh, 1526 called the Battle of Mohac uh, in what is today southern Hungary, uh, where most of the Hungarian nobility, the counts and, and princes and people, all died because the Ottoman Empire had cutting-edge artillery. And the Hungarian nobility, they were wearing these sort of uh, Renaissance suits of armor, which meant a lot of them that, you know, they'd get hit by a flaming cannonball and basically melt to death inside their armor. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, it's, uh, apologies for being so graphic, but uh, it meant that um, Hungary, yeah, so Hungary was part of the Ottoman Empire for, for 200 years, or 150 to 200 years. And then after that, it was part of uh, Austria. And it means that, you know, this is very different from a country like France or the United Kingdom, where you have Muslim immigrants that are mostly coming from their former colonies, where you could make the argument that uh, French people, you know, they were the unwanted immigrants in Algeria 100 years ago, and now, you know, it's the other way around. It does, it does seem that this sort of level of violence that has been, um, has been more an aspect of Hungary's history than many other countries in the region... Um, must play into the fears uh, that Orban has been using to to gain uh, electrical support. Well, yeah, I mean, when Orban says that, uh, you know, he's going to defend uh, Christianity in Europe, you know, he's alluding to this history uh, of Hungary being part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, he and, and I think that it's a little it's a lot easier to encourage um, mob violence or I mean, in Hungary, sometimes it's state violence. Uh, against uh, migrants uh, by playing that up. Um, what examples have we seen? Well, so there is a uh, there's a s- small town on the border with uh, Serbia that published. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. They published a promotional video that their uh, police department put together, where they were driving along the border in sort of pickup trucks and pointing their guns out the window. Uh, there was another. There was another video clip of a uh, Hungarian journalist actually kicking uh, a migrant who was uh, walking in front of them um, and and sort of knocking them down. Um, I mean, there's been there's there's been individual acts of violence by by Hungarians against uh, migrants. It's uh, it's distur- I mean, I find it quite disturbing to see images like this uh, from from places where some of the worst violence you know in World War II happened. It's uh, does not augur well when I see stuff like that. that. That's my gut reaction. Well, I think for all Europeans, um, uh, obviously the, these are these are pictures or images that, uh, first of all, we, we've seen from other parts of the world, but but we've also seen uh, in our own locale in other times in history, of course. Um, so it is disturbing, but it's I'm I'm very taken with the idea that Hungary's history of of having. Um, the Ottomans dominating them uh, for so many years, 200 years. Um, and and of, at the beginning of that, this terrible battle. Um, I can imagine that, you know, reverberating. Um, and I can see how Orban used that um, effectively to create this paranoia. While, you know, Hungarians were, 
whatever you want to call it, sacrificing themselves to fight the Ottoman Empire. They were preventing the Ottoman Empire from going to places like Florence, uh, where they would have strangled the uh, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance uh, before it got off the ground. I'm sure the Hungar- do, do Hungarians make that argument? Do they say, look, we saved civilization here? They, well, they certainly think so, yes. Um, Hungarians, you know, they, I mean, the Hungarians, they're, they're very interesting people, and, and they have, you know, I guess you could say every country in Europe is unique, but they, but they really do have a unique uh, history. The, the Hungarians only came to Europe... Uh, in the year 895, they were a nomadic, or you know, a, a, a group of nomadic tribes that came west, uh, roughly around the same time as the the Mongols or the um, the Turkic expansion in Asia Minor, or around the time the Vikings started to come down uh, from the north uh, into Europe. Uh, but the, and then they they settled, but they brought their their language with them, which is uh, there's a couple of different names for this uh, language family. There's some dispute amongst linguistics, but sometimes it's called Finno-Ugric languages or Semitic languages or Uralic languages. But uh, the the only languages that have more than fifty thousand speakers or so that are at all close to Hungarian are uh, Finnish and Estonian, but they're very different. And Hungary sits. You know, they're surrounded by Slavic language speakers. Hungary is actually what separates the, the different branches of the Slavic family because it separates the Ukrainian and Russian speakers, uh, the East Slavic languages from the, you know, sort of Czech or uh, Polish, you know, the West Slavic languages from the Croatian and Serbian, the South Slavic languages. And then it also borders, of course, Austria, which speaks German, Germanic languages, and it borders Romania, where they speak a Romance language. So Hungary is surrounded by all these cultures that are very different from them, and uh, I think it can make their culture a bit insular uh, at times. It, can ma- it, it makes it easy to see that Hungarians that, that are different uh, than other people, but, but perhaps most importantly, when the Hungarians settled, they uh, adopted Catholicism, and the, the crown of Hungary, which you'll see, uh, it's not on their flag, but you'll, you know, you'll see it around Budapest, it has a, a sort of crooked cross on the top, because the Holy Roman Emperor... Uh, gave the king of Hungary a crown, and it was damaged uh, en route, and, and the cross was bent. But it's a, it's a, it, it is a, a state that's over a thousand years old. It is uh, actually. If so, when you when you go to Budapest, you'll see a lot of beautiful uh, Beaux Arts buildings. Uh, it's similar to uh, Paris or Barcelona. Uh, and the reason there's so much stuff uh, from around then is that they, in 1896, to commemorate the thousandth anniversary of the Magyar or Hungarian people coming to Europe. Uh, they built uh, a lot of stuff in Budapest, and they particularly liked building buildings that are 96 meters tall, uh, which is why you'll see the sort of uniform height in, uh, in downtown Budapest amongst the buildings. Why 96 meters? Ah, because it was 1896, uh-huh. or, you know, the anniversary of 896. Gotcha. Uh, but, of course, the real reason why they needed to build uh, a bunch of new buildings was that um, in 1867... Austria became uh, the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary. The Ottomans, so the Ottomans invaded Hungary, uh, and then they laid siege to Vienna twice, actually, uh, but never took the city. And then the Austrian army uh, pursued them down and annexed more and more territory. But by 1867, uh, in, in response to the unification of Italy, the unification of Germany, there were calls for nationalism amongst all these different groups of people in the Austrian Empire, and Emperor Franz Joseph came up with the idea of having a dual monarchy because basically German speakers plus Hungarian speakers made a, about half of the population. 
of the Austrian Empire. And he thought that by doing that, he could uh, keep nationalism under control uh, in his lands. And that meant that Budapest became the co-capital, along with Vienna, of Austria-Hungary. And because it was the co-capital, it needed to have grand administrative buildings. Uh, and so they built a bunch of stuff. And the sort of re- the, the cover story they gave to all of that was that it was in celebration of the thousandth anniversary of the Hungarians coming to Europe. So then the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, itself becomes a thing. It does, and uh, and this is you know this is what's sort of referred to as the the glory years uh, in uh, by Hungarians. But of course, uh, you know all the real political power, all the foreign policy power remained in Vienna, and this period only lasted about fifty years because. In addition to Hungary, the Austrian army continued going south, and they got um, Bosnia, which did not become part of Hungary. It stayed part of Austria, but that was where uh, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in 1914. Of course. In Sarajevo, uh, which started World War I. And at the end of World War I, um, Austria-Hungary was on the losing side, and Austria-Hungary was broken up into all of these different countries— and Austria and Hungary were separate countries, but they both lost most of their territory. And in general, they only got to keep, in the case of Austria, where the, the communities were majority German-speaking, and in Hungary, where the communities were majority Hungarian-speaking. But there were two big groups, uh, two, or excuse me, two places where there were majority Hungarian speakers that Hungary did not get to keep. One was uh, Transylvania, and the other was the area in Slovakia along the Danube River, which is almost 100% uh, Hungarian-speaking, but that's also where the main rail line uh, between Prague and uh, Bratislava runs. And Woodrow Wilson and the Americans decided that that should be part of Slovakia. But if you, you, if you go to Budapest today, most places in Europe, they have, uh, outside of you know capital buildings, political buildings, you'll see three flags. You'll see the local flag, you'll see the flag of the country you're in, and then you'll see the EU flag. But the parliament, the Hungarian parliament building doesn't have that. It just has the Hungarian flag, and then it has the Transylvanian flag, which uh, suggests that Hungary might want to take this territory back someday. Do, do you think that this, this deep and often violent history made the people of Hungary more susceptible to a populist leader like Orban? Uh, I think it contributed, but I, I think that the, the real, the most important thing is just that there's not a long history of democracy in Hungary. I mean, I guess there are people about my age, maybe a little younger, who don't, they don't really have any living memory of communism, and in theory they've lived in a democracy their whole lives. But, um, you know, people of Orban's age... Uh, or older, they they certainly you know they grew up with uh, in a dictatorship really, and I'm not sure, especially in the wake of the between the financial crisis and seeing migrants going through the country, I'm not sure that democracy really enjoys popular su- support in large swaths of the population. So so they're they're seeking a strong leader. I don't think that people have as much to lose under a strong leader, as, you know, German people or French people or, or British people might. I think it's easy to just sort of think, well, you know, Hungary's been, you know, it was dominated by Austria, it was dominated by Russia, you know, now it's dominated by Germany. You know, we're always going to be 
you know, have some big neighbor that's, you know, making life hard for us. And the only way we can get through that is by clinging to nationalism, you know. It seems um, pretty hard set uh, in, in, in terms of the results we've seen that you know, large numbers of people in Hungary do think like that. And they, they are, I mean, an Orban presumably uh, wishing to keep in power um, chooses to change his views. They're doing that at the same time that the European Union is paying for new highways and train lines and... Uh, you know, all this infrastructure that allows people in Hungary to have a higher standard of living. They wouldn't have that without money that mostly comes from, you know, France and Germany. Well, it, didn't, it seems that the EU didn't see this coming. Well, I don't, I mean, I wasn't uh, paying attention that much in, I believe it was 2002 when these countries joined the European Union. But, uh, you know, from what I read in newspapers at the time, I didn't read a lot of, of stuff that said, hold on, you know, should we really be adding these countries to the European Union? You know, how much do they really have in common with us? What's the point of all of this? I think that there was an idea that it's a little more fragile today, but I think it was still uh, pretty commonly held in the early 2000s. There was this idea that representative democracy and capitalism are sort of the end of all political processes, and this is the best system in the real world and that we should spread it everywhere and everywhere it goes it's going to bring prosperity and it's going to you know improve things and that people just didn't really think about it it is is was what i remember well i i know it at the time i know at the time in, in certainly in the uk there were there were quite a few politicians who were saying um should you know it, this isn't right the eu you know it needs to be um Within it, it needs to hold its boundaries here, and and going after these less developed countries uh, in Eastern Europe, the reasons are there, said the argument. Um, uh, but the fact is that bringing them on board uh, isn't the right thing for Europe because it it puts too much of a burden on us in terms of development aid, and you know these people maybe they're not they're not like us. That certainly was a view. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can appreciate that position without uh, agreeing with it. I, um, I think it's, it's, it's sort of a paradox because the European Union was created in this Cold War environment where you could basically expand and include Greece and you could include Spain, you could include Portugal, but there was this barrier of how far east you could go before you had the Russian sphere of influence. And, you know, once that was gone... All of a sudden, you had to figure out where the borders of the European Union uh, really should be. I mean, there are some people who think that Turkey should be in the European Union. Right now, Turkey has a customs union with the European Union, but it's not, it's not part of the European Union. Turkey's going to have to join the European Union at some point if the situation on Cyprus is ever going to be uh, resolved, which perhaps is a subject for another day. But, you know, should Ukraine join the European Union? If Ukraine joins the European Union, what about uh, Belarus? You know, should Europe, uh, excuse me, should Russia join the European Union? Uh, you know, how far should, should this go? Um, it's not something I, I read a lot of serious stuff about, although I keep my eye open for it. Well, there's been an awful lot of talk following Ukraine and, uh, and uh, the Crimea, of course, um, about the impression that Europe has given by its um, uh, reaching out to these uh, countries 
that were formerly uh, in, in the barrier, as it were, barrier countries between uh, Western Europe and uh, Soviet, the ex-Soviet Union states. Um, there was a there was a sense um, that was very uh, uh, tangible, uh, certainly at the time, that this was provocative mm. uh, amongst amongst. I mean, to some people, um, not everybody, but to some people, there was a sense of, are we baiting the bear here? Well, I mean, in the case of Ukraine, I, I'm quite sympathetic to the whatever you want to call it, the Russian uh, point of view. I mean, Ukraine, without. Ukraine being Russia-oriented, Russia is not going to have very much influence in Europe. Whereas if Ukraine is part of the Russian sphere of influence, they can project power pretty far uh, into Europe. You know, you can look at Western Ukraine. I mean, some of these towns like uh, Lvov, you know, they were part of Poland between World War I and World War II. They were part of Austria before that. And in places like Hungary and Poland, living standards compared with the end of communism, per capita income is more than 100% higher today than it was then. Whereas in Ukraine, uh, people actually earn less now than they did in 1990. So I can understand why you know, some people, particularly in Western Ukraine, would want to join the European Union, and then I can understand why people in Crimea or in Eastern Ukraine, where it's basically 100% Russian-speaking, where the industries tend to be associated with with the Russian economy, why why they wouldn't. It's complicated, you know? <laughs> it, oh, it's so complicated. But but uh, it it's it's still interesting to me that that, you know, Hungary came in, Poland came in, um um and Romania. Um these were all countries that were under um the Soviet Union influence once upon a time. And this does seem to be an ongoing ideological war going on to some extent um, well it's i mean I, it's more than ideological i mean again in in april 1945 the tanks stopped but that didn't mean that the contest for influence between moscow and berlin stopped and particularly i mean maybe things were frozen during the cold war but particularly uh when the cold war ended i mean almost immediately you saw violence in yugoslavia you know, you saw a sort of reignition of um, religious, you know, sectarian warfare uh, in this part of the world. And, and hung- Hungary has been spared that, mostly, although it's worth mentioning that there were ethnic Hungarians killed in Serbia uh, in the 1990s. But, you know, Hungary borders Serbia and it borders Ukraine, both countries where they've had uh, separatist uh, movements and, uh, and violence. It's a real possibility that that could happen there, um, although I think it's unlikely as long as they're part of the European Union. There also seems to be a characteristic amongst the Hungarians, given their history, that that, that they actually have managed to be re- relatively cohesive uh, as a people in, in, in their state. There hasn't been a civil war as such. It's true. And, uh, you know, as much as they might like to complain about the, the years when they were part of the Ottoman Empire, it meant that they were spared the wars of religion, which in France and Germany killed, I think, about a third of the population during, during the 130 Years' War and the French Wars of Religion. Hungarian culture can be, it can be very, um, it can be very good for keeping people together. And especially when you consider that, you know, after World War I, a third of the Hungarian-speaking population didn't even live uh, in Hungary anymore. 
Um, one of the things Orban has done to boost his power is he's actually given Hungarian passports to Hungarians living in Romania and Croatia who, who want them uh, so that they can vote for Fidesz. Uh-huh. Uh, he can't do that in Slovakia because Slovakia doesn't allow uh, dual, dual nationality. Obviously, if you have a European Union passport, you can live wherever you want to. But most Hungarians in Slovakia, they have to keep their Slovak passports if they want to work for the state or, you know, do stuff like that. But I think he's given out like almost a million passports in Romania, which is interesting. Oh, really? I mean, I mean, anyone, anyone talking about a greater Hungar- Hungary? Oh, well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. By flying the, the Transylvanian flag on the parliament building, I mean, he seems to be, you know, saying that Transylvania is uh, Hungary. Uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that uh, during World War II, Hungary, you know, as part of the Axis, it was very uh, closely aligned with Nazi Germany, which meant that Hungary di- actually didn't get occupied until 1944, when the Red Army was about to come in. Uh, but during World War II, um, Nazi Germany basically gave them a lot of the land that they had lost after World War I, World War I back, including the uh, Transylvania, the part of Tr- Romania where Hungarians live. The idea that they could get this land back through um, right-wing populism, I-, I think it has some credibility with people, but the-, the fact that they're doing that while also building barbed wire fences separating one group of Hungarians from another seems uh, faintly ridiculous to me. This extraordinary man who, who, who has made this journey, has built his party, has, has, has played some uh, useful moves as far as his own power is concerned. Uh, he's now been in power since 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- where is this going? So if you go to Budapest, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful city, and one of my favorite things about it is that Buda, the west side, is basically the foothills of the Alps. There's actually a, not a great ski resort, but there's like a little ski hill that kids can use. And then Pest on the east side is Pancake Flat, and it has you know tram lines and bike lanes and stuff. And so you sort of get the best of having a flat city and a really hilly city. But uh, Pest, the east side, is where the parliament building is, and Buda, the west side, is where the, the castle, where the Hungarian kings uh, lived. And Orban recently moved his office out of the parliament building on the east side and put it in the castle on the west side, which seems to... Uh, indicate that he wants to be seen as a, as a leader for life, potentially. What the question is, when will democracy stop being uh, useful for, for Orban? Now, Hungary and, and Poland, uh, I mean, we haven't talked that much about Poland, but uh, these are both countries where the European Union is considering restricting their voting rights in European Union affairs because they aren't democracies anymore. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but... Uh, to be in the European Union, you know, you have to, first of all, you have to get support, you know, there has to be universal support amongst all the EU members if they're going to add another country. And they don't let uh, dictatorships in. You have to be a representative democracy. And one thing that's certainly not written into EU law is what do you do if a country stops being a democracy? Uh, there's no precedent for it as of yet. Yeah, I know, I know I'm planned for it either. Definitely not. So what do they do? It's mm, a good question. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, it fits into a broader question of what, what is the point of the European Union now that there's no living memory, you know, that there's, there's only a handful of people who actually remember World War II. There's certainly no one in political power who actually fought in it. 
um, what is the point of the, of the European Union? Is it just an excuse for American military bases and German factories to go on in these other countries, or is there something more to it? Every country in the European Union has its own version of Orban, its own version of uh, reactionary right-wing populism, and some of them also have uh, left-wing uh, populists who are very critical of the uh, European Union. Uh, in France, I'm thinking of Mélenchon, who, and I think a lot of the people in Brussels are sort of worried about their own problems rather than what they're going to do uh, about Hungary or Poland. Yeah, because Poland as well. I mean, um, the president of Poland and the president of Hungary are good mates. Well, you know, that's sort of a pattern. I've, I notice, I see this all over the world. If you've got two countries that are just far enough away from each other that they haven't gone to war like a million times, they're usually like best friends, you know? And, and Poland and Hungary definitely have that. You know, they're both uh, Catholic, but, and I remember seeing... Uh, I live in Greenpoint uh, in New York, which is the, the biggest Polish neighborhood in New York City. And, you know, I'll see sometimes on people's uh, lapels, I'll see a little pin that has the Polish flag and the Hungarian flag uh, crossed. Really? That's quite close. Any ambitions, joint ambitions there? They, bo- they certainly both want to keep, uh, both want to keep uh, Muslims out, you know. I think Poland at this point is the only country in Europe where the majority of people still go to mass on Sunday. I know Ireland was like that, uh, whatever, about 20 years ago. Yeah, well, that's over. Hungary is nominally a Catholic country, but Orban actually converted to Lutherism after communism uh, ended, and he and his wife had a uh, religious ceremony years after they actually got married. Uh, they, they had a ceremony in the church. Uh, so he's nominally not Catholic, but he certainly plays into sort of, you know, traditionally Catholic, uh, you know, fears, fears of Islam and, and, and Christian identity. Um, it's, it's weird because in, in these countries, they, politicians, they, they almost portray um, liberal democracy and the erosion of Christianity as being like two sides of the same coin, which I don't think they really are. But uh, I guess once you can group all your enemies, uh, you know, and just sort of say all these things are one same thing, you can say anything, really. You know, it does sound, Richie, like the European Union back in the early 2000s bit off more than they could chew. Mm, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, and part of the problem here uh, has been the, the sort of the financial policy of the European Union. I mean, the euro, it's great politics, this idea, oh, we're all going to use the same currency. You know, we're going to be united. We're going to do this together. It's great politics. And, you know, there's very little to criticize there. But this idea that... Um, Greek debt is going to be treated legally the same as debt from, say, the Netherlands, because they're both using the euro, is, is ridiculous. I mean, you don't have to know much about European culture to know that uh, tax collection in the Netherlands, the second biggest food exporting country in the world, uh, versus Greece, you know, which is, I mean, what do they make? Honey and yogurt, basically, in Greece? And they have, you know, they have a lot of tourism, but uh, the idea that, you know, that debt from those two countries should have the same interest rate is is fairly ridiculous to me. And I think that the European Union could administrate more competently in these countries, but they, if they did so, they would do so at the expense of industry in the big Western European countries, which I'm not sure politicians in those countries really want, no matter how much hand-wringing they do publicly about Viktor Orban. I wonder would Brexit have happened or it hasn't happened yet, may never. But um, but I wonder would it have even been an issue if if 
that expansion of the European Union hadn't happened. Well, you know, I feel like the beginning of all of this was, and I wish I had the article in front of me, I remember uh, when they announced that, that Germany was going to be reunified. Um, I, this is the very end of Margaret Thatcher's premiership in the United Kingdom. And there were a lot of people in the Conservative Party at that time who were very unhappy about the idea of a united Europe, or excuse me, of a united Germany. And they thought it was going to end uh, very badly uh, for the United Kingdom. And I have to say that in a way, they're right, because once you have a united Germany, that country is going to dominate Europe, for better or for worse. And once you have a Germany that, that, that dominates Europe, even if we're only talking sort of economically, um, it's going to expand, and it's going to expand until some outside force uh, forces it to stop. And that appears to be what the financial crisis and the migrant crisis have done. I have to say, I, I was at the Berlin Wall when, when it came down. Um, and and uh, I, I was the second person through Checkpoint Charlie coming from East Berlin into West Berlin. And wow, that must have been a party that night. It was a heck of a party. I mean, literally, you'd walk down the street and both sides' doors were open and parties happening in every house, in every apartment as you walked down the street. And the doors were all open. It was like, come in, have fun, join in. It's, it was such a night. Unfortunately, I was busy reporting at the time, so I wasn't able to, 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 to uh, enjoy myself quite as much as everybody else was. But I do remember... Uh, I was trying to do a piece to camera um, and um, I say trying because I, I remember the cameraman virtually gave up. I mean, he, he said, look, this is your last chance. I think I'd done 20, 22 or 23 takes. He said, I don't know about you, but I, I'm here to capture history uh, and uh, I'm not going to be pointing the camera at you all night trying to get your words right. Um, and the reason I was struggling was because I was, I mean, I went through so many versions. I still have the notebook um, of, of of that piece to camera because you know what was happening was so enormous that when you simply wrote down what it appeared to be it looked so crazy uh, in terms of its implications that you know one felt uh simply unqualified to say it uh, even though it, it you know my first iteration was probably the right one and and that was you know everything has now changed it's it's everything that was is no longer, and uh, the, and the future has arrived, uh, and the implications of that take us all the way to Viktor Orban. It seems to me immediately to Hungary South in uh, in Serbia and Croatia and Yugoslavia. That was where the change started. I mean, we we would have to do a whole separate episode about Yugoslavia to talk about everything that happened. But uh, one of the things that happened was that a lot of these uh, East German arms. Uh, started to appear uh, in the hands of uh, Croatian militia, and uh, you know I've I've read different things on this. There's different theories on how this happened, um, but it it certainly didn't bring peace right away. Oh, that's for sure. I was actually in a in a railway station in a place called Sunja in southern Croatia uh, early on in the war, um, and I remember um, filming. Uh, in the in the in a child's bedroom in the station of the obviously the station master uh, had an apartment above the station and and uh, in one of his children's r rooms the children long gone as as had the station master and his wife presumably um, but but they were firing from this position and and the guy who was firing was wearing a helmet with a swastika on it 
And that's when I came across the Ustasha for the first time, or at least the, the history of and the reverberations of, and indeed the relations with Germany, etc. Um, so that, again, uh, you know, the deeper one got into these wars that broke out after the Berlin Wall fell, the, the, the deeper you had to understand European history. And uh, talking about Croatia, of course, uh, Franjo Tudjman uh, did uh, earlier but what, what Viktor Orban is doing today. He gave Croatian passports to Croats living in Bosnia or in, in Serbia or even in Canada, the United States, uh, so that they could vote for him. Yes, but there's no suggestion, is there, that um, Orban is is planning any military activities in in nearby neighborhoods? Is there? No, I not that I know of, and and it's worth mentioning that Hungary, in addition to joining the European Union, also joined uh, NATO. So it is formally a military ally of the United States and the United Kingdom. Well, how's that been playing out? I mean, how is his relations in NATO, for instance? There's not that much uh, military stuff to do uh, these days. I mean, Hungary has a small border. Uh, with Ukraine, and I guess it has a small border with uh, with Serbia, but on the border with Serbia, they're more worried about migrants than they are about the uh, Serbian army. The only thing I've ever seen the Hungarian military do is that they they have these elaborate uh, changing of the guard ceremonies that they do outside his office now, uh, where soldiers wearing these fancy blue uniforms will, uh, you know, spin their guns around and swap them back and forth and stuff like that. There is a strong military flavour to Hungary. There's a, a, a real sense of, uh, certainly um, in, in European literature, there's plenty of uh, uh, stories about um, aristocratic young men joining the, the Hungarian army, uh, wearing their, their particularly styled hats and feathers coming out of it and all that stuff. Uh, absolutely, and there was a lot of uh, during the the fifty years of the the dual monarchy, there were a lot of operettas that were performed first in Vienna and then in you know London and New York and everywhere else that were written by uh, Hungarian composers, people like Liszt. Uh, that you know, and a lot of them, this one of the more common plot lines is the aristocratic soldier who falls in love with the villager girl, you know, and their love is cursed but you know but it works somehow and 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 that sort of thing so so here we are um uh with that bucolic thought um <laughs> um uh, but where do we go from here um orban is definitely a, a needle in the side of of europe right now um he represents a threat uh to democracy uh as that's been clearly um stated mm. um how he fits into the model of Europe that hasn't planned for such a threat is still to be discovered. But what can he do next? I mean, he appears to be quite blasé about the, crit the critics he has um, uh, because of the support he has in his own country. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't need to be popular, you know, in, uh, in Brussels. Uh, and he's, he's developed very good, uh, a very good relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Xi Jinping in Russia and China. He, in some ways, you know, he's sort of the model of uh, authoritarian capitalism that seems to be gaining popularity all around the world. Uh, it's a little bit easier to look at in Hungary because it's a smaller country that's surrounded by many, you know, bigger, more powerful countries. I mean, Orban seems to be here to stay at least for the, another couple of years. I, I imagine he could only be taken down by someone much younger than him, someone more like the younger Orban who has ambition and a vision of the future that uh, is beyond what he's capable of. If you and I uh, were, were, were not sitting as we are now in, in well, me in southwest France, 
uh, and you in Brooklyn, um, but were instead uh, having this conversation uh, around a, a table in a cafe in Budapest. Uh, would would people be looking at us uh, askant? Would they be worried about this conversation? Would they feel that we were wrong to be having it? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, when when I talk with people in uh, in Budapest, you know, first of all, you know, young people, at least the the ones who are educated who can afford to live in Budapest, you know, most of them speak at least a little bit of English, and uh, you know, they have EU passports. So a lot of more educated Hungarians, you know, have lived at least for a little while in Germany or in the UK or in other parts of the Europe, excuse me, other parts of Europe. But it's interesting, you know, Orban, for, for a while, he had broad support in the countryside, but he, he didn't have much support in Budapest, which is where about a quarter of the population, population lives, until fairly recently. Uh, but now Fidesz actually controls, I believe, even the city council in Budapest. And um, I think he gets I think he gets legitimacy from being disliked by foreigners. And so in that way, I think they'd probably be OK with it. And so where does this take us, Richie? I mean, here he is. He, he seems to be doing relatively well as a politician. Uh, he's, he's definitely a populist. He's uh, he's a nationalist. Uh, he appears to control the media um, he has a very powerful political party with, I gather, over 51% of the popular vote. Um, what's in his way? What does he want? Where is he going to take this? That's the thing. I mean, I think Orban has what he wants for now, which is a steady stream of hard currency coming from the European Union, and then the ability to frame himself as being opposed to that uh, in the interests of his own people. Going forward, Hungary is going to try and preserve the status quo for the most part. I mean, I, I can't see them wanting to join the euro. I can't see them wanting to actually leave the European Union because if they did that, they wouldn't have all the things that they have today. I, you know, And I don't think they'd have that being part of Russia's sphere of influence the way that Ukraine or Belarus are. Uh, I think he's just going to try and uh, hang on to power and prevent the uh, Socialist Party from getting in the way. One major thing we haven't talked about yet, which is the Central European University. Ah, Sor- Soros's educational establishment in in the middle of his, of the capital. Yes, uh, Soros has been a very quite quite a benefactor uh, to them. And in early 2017, there was a bill introduced into the Hungarian Parliament to restrict uh, the activities of foreign universities operating in Hungary. The Central European University is affiliated with Bard College in upstate New York, uh, but its only campus is in Budapest, and the, the meat of the proposed law says that the university shouldn't be allowed to award both American and Hungarian university degrees because it only has a campus in Europe and not in the United States. Central European University is headed by a Canadian named Michael Ignatiev, who uh, used to be the, the leader of the Liberal Party in Canada. Oh, and a big and, and, and a quite a well-known presenter in the UK. Yes, indeed, uh, and a, a very bright intellectual, a good critic uh, of uh, of modern culture. Yeah, in the show notes, uh, I will post a link to an interview he did for, I believe, the Late Show. Uh, in 1994 with uh, Eric Hobsbawm, the uh, communist historian. Uh, and they spend most of the second half of it talking uh, about, um, I mean, a lot of things, but in particular about the 1956 invasion 
of Hungary, and uh, he, he, he works Hobbesman pretty hard to get him to criticize the communist movement. It's, uh, it's fun to watch. The, the question that still remains for me is, will Europe kick Hungary out? I mean, my gut says no. I feel like it would just be bad. It would be bad optics for German politicians uh, talking about the expulsion of, of another country. I mean, I, with Brexit going on, I guess we've already got one country potentially leaving the European Union. I think they're going to wait at least until that situation stabilizes uh, before they contemplate kicking another country out. But how can, uh, how can someone like Orban... Uh, who, who clearly does not have uh, uh, the values of Europe uh, at heart uh, in the way he's running his country, um, be part of Europe and 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 be a part of the club when uh, he's sort of breaking the club's rules. They're going to have to offer Hungarian people um, something that they won't get uh, from Orban, because right now Orban is able to deliver all of the money and institutional support of the European Union uh, while also criticizing them. Uh, you know, someone's going to have to come along who either who can either deliver more without criticizing them or is going to offer a uh, viable alternative. Uh, right now, Orban is managing to kind of have it uh, both ways, and I, at least for the moment, I can't really imagine someone else doing a better job of that than he. But I mean, you're right, of course, that if the European Union is, is going to be a serious uh, institution, that they cannot tolerate um, the destruction of democracy within its own borders. Uh, it's, we, we all know how this story ends, you know, <laughs> the collapse of democracy in Central Europe. It doesn't end in a pretty way. Oh, dear. I do hope not. We all hope not. But it's like, it's, in a way, it's almost scary to even talk about it. It's, it's tempting to just uh, not think about it, uh, which I think at least 15 years ago was very easy to do. I mean, this idea that democracy wasn't going to be popular, it was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I was not lucky enough to travel behind the Iron Curtain in the 1980s, but I know people who did, and they said that you know, if you if you had, you know, Marlboro cigarettes and blue jeans, I mean, you were you instantly had friends uh, because these things were all symbols. I mean, perhaps they were symbols of materialism, but they were also symbols of uh, things that come from a democratic, prosperous society. I, I'd sometimes wish that uh, I could sit down with Francis Fukuyama. Uh, the the famous uh, author of uh, the end of history and and ask him what were you thinking? To his credit, he's repudiated his own thesis. Uh, now he he is no longer a Fukuyamaist himself. Um, <laughs> which again, where you know, there's so many um, so many you know ridiculous things you have to keep in your head to to talk about what's going on in Central Europe um, in a serious way. But what what are the big differences in uh, never mind Hungary, you know, in in the bigger countries in the EU or in the US or Canada or Australia or Ireland or, or anywhere else. What are the big differences between now and 20, 30 years ago? I mean, one of them, the big one, I feel like, is the Internet. Would Orban be able to do what he does without the his control of the media as expressed through the Internet? Uh, I'm not sure that he could. Internet has made it a lot easier for populist reactionary politicians to reach their 
audiences because they no longer have to go through these establishment uh, media institutions that are hostile to them. They can bypass them and just go directly to the people. Hmm. Now, obviously, played a very, very large role in, in both Brexit and Trump. Um, and I suppose, I suppose now with every... Um, Every populist politician, but then again, every politician. I mean, it's it's a tool that's been used um, in in all, in all elections now, isn't it? No matter how moderate moderate the players. Well, oh, absolutely. Uh, since you mentioned uh, Trump, um, it, it's worth saying that Orban was the only leader of a European Union country who was uh, actively, he wasn't campaigning for Trump, but he was actively rooting for Trump to win. Indeed, and notably one of the very few um, uh, exceptions to uh, your earlier um, comment on the amount of tourism coming to Hungary. Uh, one w- one tourist who certainly hasn't been there is Mr. Trump, which I gather is to Mr. Or- Orban's great disappointment. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, Trump, uh, he's been to France. I know he quite enjoyed watching that uh, military parade up the Champs-Élysées uh, with Macron uh, a little while back. Uh, yes, I'm sure Orban would love to have a state visit uh, from the President of the United States. And nothing would have given him greater joy than, of course, being invited to the White House, I suppose. Oh, I mean, that would be even better to show, um, to show Orban yeah, strolling, strolling along Pennsylvania Avenue uh, along with uh, Melania and the Donald. Oh, I do fear that these things may come. Would not surprise me um, if they did. You know, Marine Le Pen hasn't actually become leader of France. Alternative for Deutschland has not been able to get into the government in Germany. Orban, I think, is the leader of the biggest country in Europe that has... Well, I guess Poland has more people than Hungary. But um, Poland hasn't been able to cultivate the relationships with China and Russia that Orban's been able to. Uh, And it certainly hasn't been able to maintain its popularity amongst the diaspora communities in North America as well as Orban has either. You know, it leaves me with the thought that um, the great European project uh, is, is, is not one thing. Uh, it's, it's different things to different people. But, but if you were to split it in half, maybe it isn't half, maybe it's more of one than the other, but you have the United States of Europe, which is the project that a lot of people fear in Britain, um, because they don't wish to be a state of Europe. They wish to be an independent state. Um, and then the, 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 the idea, the project that they would believe was the point, which was a, a union of states, whereby they would trade freely with each other and move freely w- within each of these states. And that was the limit to, to which many people in Britain uh, were prepared to go and no further. And with the expansion into the east um, uh, of Europe, um, bringing in countries like Poland um, and Hungary, um, with that came that sense that they hadn't signed up to this. Um, So what's missing in the midst of all of this, uh, it seems to me, is a vision um, from the the United States of Europe people. I I don't hear... I mean, it's because it's such a touchy subject, of course, and with with great political charge. But but we seem to lack any visionaries uh, in Europe. Anyone who's prepared to sort of explain, well, this is what the project is. This is what what we're here for. These are the values we uh, believe in, and will 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 not uh, will not move on. Um, that's not there. So there's a sort of a vacuum of vision, 
And in that vacuum of vision, we, we risk the whole thing. Well, there, there's, it's more than a vacuum of vision. There, there's a paradox. There's a paradox with um, when Angela Merkel said that she, that, you know, Germany was going to welcome uh, these refugees, and I believe this was in 2014 or thereabouts. Uh, th- this was not put to a vote in the German parliament. Uh, it's even arguable. I mean, I personally think I, that it's wonderful that she did that. I think it was the right thing to do. I think if Germany hadn't done that, there would have been a lot of uh, comparisons to Nazism, which may or may not have been fair. But I don't think that she did it in through the democratic process. And I think that Orban can sort of point to that and he can say, this is what they call democracy. So when people say, I'm not being democratic, what they mean is that I'm not falling in line uh, with what the factory owners, you know, in Stuttgart want. Uh, and instead, I'm standing up for you, the people in Hungary. And I think in order to call him out for that, um, the European Union is going to have to, you know, strengthen its, strengthen its institutions and be more transparent. Uh, but also, we're going to have to see more support uh, from people in France and Germany for um, democratic reforms, just you know, throughout Europe. And I'm not sure that it's really there, at least in its current form. Still proto-Europe. Lamentably so, yeah. What a cheery note to, uh, <laughs> to wrap things up on. I fear so. I suppose it's where, where we are, and, and I suppose that's the point of this conversation, is to, is to have a clearer understanding, um, uh, which I hope, I hope I certainly have uh, uh, a better understanding as a result of this conversation. Thank you for that, Richie. Hopefully those of us uh, who have listened to you will, will now consider taking one of those uh, cheap flights to Budapest, perhaps to feel what it's like to live in the only populist-run state in Europe. I would encourage them uh, to do so. More interest from uh, people in Western Europe in Hungary will be part of the solution uh, to getting rid of figures like Orban, if that is what in fact uh, happens. Uh, Right now, you've got a situation where in the European Union, if you're a truck driver, for example, uh, you are paid a different rate depending on which country you are resident of. And this means that in places like France, for example, you know, you have uh, truck drivers, not so much from Hungary, but from uh, Romania and Bulgaria, who they can't afford to stay in hotels uh, in France when they're they're traveling around on their pay rate, and so they sleep in their trucks. These differences between European states cause tension, and that's probably unavoidable. I mean, we have a similar thing in the U.S., where some states in the U.S. are much, much wealthier uh, than other states. Um, and it doesn't work perfectly. In fact, uh, there are many problems in my country, which we could talk about in another episode. But I think that it works better than it does in Europe right now. And I think the only way that's going to change is if people in the West are willing to give up, frankly, a little bit more uh, for the benefit of uh, people in Hungary. Mm, that's a test. Because it's very, I mean, it's very easy to... Uh, to, to criticize someone like uh, Victor Orban, but what are you really going to do about it? You know, what are you going to actually uh, do to change things? I mean, it's very well to sit back while you're drinking uh, Hungarian wine and uh, and talk about how things could be better. But uh, I mean, are people are people in in France and Germany really interested in in, in sending more money 
uh, from more European Union funds uh, to Hungary? Are they interested in uh, reforming the, 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 the institutions of the European Union so that they work better for people in the East? I'm not sure they are. If, if Orban's a solution, what, what, what was it a solution to? Well, I mean, in his second term, I feel like he, you know, he was filling the vacuum uh, that was left in the wake of the um, of the financial crisis. I mean, what what we what's happened in so many countries, uh, and definitely in the United States and in Britain, politicians use the financial crisis as an excuse to massively cut spending on social services. They basically bailed out the banks, and then they put all of the debt from that on the public register instead of making the financial institutions themselves pay it back at some later date. This is not tolerable in the long run. And if uh, liberal center-left political parties aren't willing to do anything about it, it's, it's going to be left uh, to the right-wing parties to do something about it, which is unfortunate. There's a lot in common here between uh, Orban, Brexit, and Trump, you could argue. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, that the so-called elite um, liberal Democrats um, have failed to understand the amount of pain that um, people whose lives they have little connection with have been going through. And these these uprisings, of which we see only the peaks with people like Trump or issues like Brexit or people like Orban... And presumably there must be many millions more in other countries throughout Europe who feel equally um, pissed off, um, but but don't have a, but don't have a, enough support yet uh, for populists like Orban to rise. Well, I mean, speaking uh, at least about the United States, uh, there's a huge problem, uh, and I, but I'm pretty sure this is true in other countries as well. There's a huge problem where basically if you're in roughly the top 10% of the population, you basically do not come into contact with poor people unless you are either a police officer or a social worker of some kind, uh, unless they are wearing a uniform and doing something for you. That's the only time you would actually come face-to-face with them. And it means that people who, you know, who work at financial and governmental institutions really have no idea what people who are struggling are are going through. You know, they sometimes think they do because they've seen stuff in movies or on documentaries or they've read stuff in books, but they don't they don't have empirical knowledge and they don't have coworkers that they could have a drink with after work and have some kind of frank illuminating conversation. And I think that the segregation economic segregation within societies uh, it's a huge problem, and I don't think it has an easy solution, although I, I certainly wish it did. But there are, I mean, I, I, my own profession, journalism must take some responsibility here. Um, certainly in, in terms of Brexit, there's no question that the uh, uh, journalist, journalistic establishment was taken by surprise uh, by the vote, which, which to me is... Is crazy because that's our job to know what's going on. I mean, and and I mean, of course, the breakdown of provincial journalism in Britain played a role in that because the the local nodes are gone in in many of these places. But the fact that journalists didn't know what was going on, what these people were feeling, the fact that politicians who even represented these people didn't fully understand what their constituents who voted for them were feeling, um. 
it seems to me a, a tremendous failure, a tremendous... And, and then the next question is, how did that failure happen? And the, and the only word I can come up with is complacency. After the end of the Cold War, there was a lot of complacency uh, because of, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Francis Fukuyama earlier. Uh, I think that this idea that the sort of great struggles of the 20th century had ended and that we were going to be in this sort of stasis really took hold. I mean, now looking back on it, after Brexit, after Donald Trump's election, after the financial crisis, it seems kind of ridiculous. But, you know, I lived through this and I really, you know, I can personally attest to how widely held this view was. I think that people just took for granted that things were going to carry on in more or less the same way just forever. Um, and that's silly. It certainly is. And, and, and it is that sort of silliness that I hope we will be returning to because um, it seems to me that the immaculate consensus must certainly be a, a, a consensus around that fact, if, if no other. Our, our, our current silliness. Perhaps, Ron, you could say a word to our listeners about how they might uh, join the conversation uh, now that they've heard us ramble uh, for a while. Do you know, I haven't properly thought of that. Isn't that <laughs> terrible to say so? No, I think frankness is, is, the, is the... And frankness and candor, uh, they, they can count on us for that, if nothing else. About four years ago, uh, 20, yeah, four years ago in 2014, I, I set up a, a Facebook page called Immaculate Consensus, which is precisely, at this point, I gather, two members. <laughs> so, Actually, I'm so glad you said that, because I checked before we started a recording to make sure no one else already had anything called that, and that was the only thing I found oh, good. where people had used the phrase, and I was like, hmm... We might have to, you know, worry about this Facebook group. But now that I know that it's you, so so there you are. There is your ready-made answer. Four years old. Make it three members, maybe even three hundred. Let's see where it takes us. I, w I would hope, uh, of course, that we could we could actually be that a consensus because I I do think that 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 there are so many decent normal people. He says, hopefully, like us. Who, who are living their lives and, and dealing with all the normal stuff that we have to do um, just to keep those around us and, and ourselves in, 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 a, in a good place, i.e. as happy as we can be um, and, and looking after as many others as we can be. Um, at the same time, all of this stuff is happening at a much at a very different level. It's not our day-to-day -day engagement, and yet those those decisions that are being made at these higher levels are taking us to places that clearly we don't want to go. So I have a sense that, I mean, a large group of us, um, and not just us, but uh, everybody being a, a more a, a, awake to these issues and more awake to what we perhaps can do in order to, to help those people who think that the answer is someone like Mr. Trump or Mr. Orban, um, to, to find other alternatives um, that are not only better for them, but, but better for all of us. And isn't that part of the problem, that you, know, you would have to spend multiple hours every day just reading tons of stuff just to be able to keep up with the news uh, these days? I mean, I, I understand the appeal of someone like Trump or Orban who offers uh, simple answers to complex questions, and sort of closes off the need 
uh, to look at those things. But I'm hoping that our podcast can be a starting point uh, for people to to thread their way through some of these uh, more complex issues and uh, join the immaculate consensus. And, and tell us when you think we're wrong. Um, and, and, and certainly if you think that we've got any of our facts wrong, uh, that's the first thing we want to know about. Um, uh, we'll, we'll regularly... We'll work very hard to check every fact, um, and uh, knowingly, uh, neither of us will will come up with um, any bullshit. Oh, uh, definitely not, and I'm certainly not above uh, admitting when I'm wrong. Um, I'm that's I didn't really decide to do a podcast just so that I could uh, pretend that I was right about everything all the time. So our show notes, I'm hoping, will be uh, both thorough and uh, updated regularly. Let's see where this goes, Richie. That's been a great conversation. Great talking with you. Immaculate Consensus is produced by Ron McCullough and Richie Platzman. To join the Immaculate Consensus, visit our Facebook page, fb.me slash Immaculate Consensus, where you'll find show notes, sources, further reading, and corrections. You can also contact us on Twitter at iConsensusPod, or you can send us an email, ImmaculateConsensus at gmail.com. Our music is performed by the Daniel Platzman Quintet. You can stream their music on Spotify and Apple Music. Thanks for listening.